Hello, my name is Donna Newman, and I'm a partner in the Finance Litigation Group at Stevenson Harwood. Welcome to the first in our autumn 2022 series of four short podcasts, in which we take a bite-sized look at some key topics that have emerged from court or regulatory decisions over the last year. In this episode, Michael Barron, Managing Associate, and Harriet Campbell, Senior Knowledge Lawyer in our Finance Litigation Team, take a look at recent case law on limitation periods for fraud, concealment or mistake that have particular relevance to litigation against financial institutions. Hello, my name is Michael Barron and I am a Managing Associate in the Finance Litigation Team. And my name's Harriet Campbell and I'm a Senior Knowledge Lawyer in the team. In this podcast, we're going to recap some recent developments on Section 32 of the Limitation Act that have particular relevance to litigation against financial institutions. So to kick off, Michael, can you just explain the general rules on limitation? Sure. Generally, a claimant has six years from the date on which the cause of action accrued to bring a claim. Section 32 of the Limitation Act is, however, an exception to this general rule and covers claims based on fraud, concealment or mistake. Okay, and how does this Section 32 exception work? Well, in claims covered by Section 32, time does not start to run until the claimant has discovered the fraud, concealment or mistake, or could, with reasonable diligence, have discovered it. So, the first question a claimant faced with a limitation issue needs to ask are 1. Has there been a fraud, concealment or a mistake? 2. When did the claimant discover the fraud, concealment or mistake? And 3. When could the claimant, using reasonable diligence, have discovered it, if earlier? Right. And have there been any recent cases on this fraud, concealment or mistake which are particularly relevant to financial institutions? Well, yes, there are. And in this podcast, we will focus on the following key decisions. The Supreme Court in Franked Investment, a case on mistake. The Court of Appeal on Concealment and Deliberate Breach of Duty in Canada Square and Potter and Gemalto and Infineon. And, in relation to fraud, ECU and HSBC, European Real Estate Debt Fund and Trion, and the Libyan Investment Authority and Credit Suisse, and Bilta and SVS. Excellent. And so before learning what those cases say about the specifics of fraud and concealment, can we just cover what is meant by reasonable diligence? So, I mean, presumably the actual discovery of the fraud, for example, is a factual matter. But is it more complex working out when the claimant could hypothetically, with reasonable diligence, have discovered it? Yes. And and that's actually one of the key issues in the recent case law. So the question of reasonable diligence might be characterised as a two-stage objective test. The first limb is whether there is anything to put the claimant on notice of a need to investigate, which we'll refer to as the trigger. And the second is what a reasonably diligent investigation would then reveal, with time starting to run from that later date. Although some case law suggests reasonable diligence is only required once the trigger has been pressed, The Court of Appeal in OT Computers stated it is more accurate to say that the requirement of reasonable diligence applies throughout. Okay, so 
arguably reasonable diligence is a constant. Um, and what exactly does it involve? Well, reasonable diligence actually differs slightly depending on the context. So what we'll do now is we'll look at cases relating to the three separate categories of mistake, concealment and fraud. So Harriet, I'll hand over to you for a quick recap on the law on mistake. Okay, so the key recent decision on this is from the Supreme Court in the Franked Investment litigation. Um, The reference to this case and all of the cases is in the notes. So this case related to the legal position on the tax treatment of payments dating back to the 1970s, and it's a very complex case. For our purposes, the key point is that the Supreme Court held that a mistake of law is reasonably discoverable as soon as the claimant realises it has a worthwhile claim, known as the worthwhile claim test. Previous authorities had actually held that a stricter test, known as the statement of claim test, applied. That required the claimant to be able to properly plead a claim, and in the context of mistakes of law, was thought to require a relevant or final judicial decision. Instead, the Supreme Court held that the delayed limitation clock starts ticking as soon as the claimant realises they have this worthwhile claim. So this was further defined as having enough information to justify embarking on the preliminaries of a claim. Okay, so does that stricter test apply to all Section 32 cases? Well, no, actually, it hasn't been followed in other cases, in particular in fraud, which we'll come on to last, um, although it has recently been applied in a concealment case. Thanks, Harriet. I think you're going to now talk a little bit more about those concealment cases. Yeah, exactly. So there are two cases I want to briefly talk about on concealment, and they are Canada Square and Potter and Gemalto and Infineon, both the decisions of the Court of Appeal. So in Canada Square, which was previously egg banking, they failed to disclose the level of commission on a PPI policy. Um, It was, in fact, 95% of the premium. In the context of a limitation defence, the Court of Appeal had to determine what deliberate concealment under Section 32.2 of the Act meant. And it actually gave some very clear guidance. So first of all, it said a deliberate breach of duty, which is unlikely to be discovered for some time, constitutes deliberate concealment. Drilling down further into those terms, it held that deliberate can include reckless and that a breach of duty can include any legal wrongdoing. So it's not necessarily a specific contractual, tortious or fiduciary duty. And finally, it held that active concealment is not required. So it could be a failure to disclose a fact relevant to a potential claim, even if that failure in itself might not constitute an actual wrong. So in contrast to franked investment, this decision is viewed as more claimant friendly. However, I should say this decision has been appealed to the Supreme Court, so we await further news on that decision. The second and more recent case on concealment is Gemalto and Infineon. Here, the Court of Appeal ruled that time starts to run in deliberate concealment cases at the same time as it does for mistake. So if you remember, that's the franked investment worthwhile claim test, as opposed to the statement of claim test. The Court of Appeal didn't directly address whether the statement of claim test still applies to fraud claims, suggesting fraud might be distinguished, and uh, we'll come on to that. So that covers case law on mistake and concealment. And Michael, I think back over to you to look at the recent fraud cases. Great. Thanks, Harriet. In, in recent cases, the court has considered what reasonable diligence means. And the clear message from the court is that claimants must be proactive in investigating any suspicion of fraud or concealment. 
whether that be through routine due diligence, issuing proceedings, or making an application for pre-action disclosure. I will highlight very briefly a couple of the key points from four recent decisions. The first case is ECU Group and HSBC Bank. In this case, the court dismissed ECU's claim against HSBC for fraud and breach of confidence for being out of time, finding that ECU could, with reasonable diligence, have brought its claim earlier. In particular, the court held that sufficient knowledge to plead dishonesty does not require evidence in admissible form. It just needs to be sufficient for responsible counsel to plead the allegation. If ECU had been reasonably attentive at the requisite time, it would have pursued some of its claims within the primary six-year limitation period. Sufficient information to bring the other claims would have become available through disclosure in those initial claims. The exercise of reasonable diligence can encompass issuing substantive proceedings. Further, the court held that reasonable diligence could also encompass making an application for pre-action disclosure, which ECU had failed to do. So that seems to put the burden quite squarely on the claimants, but presumably it can't be better for claimants to turn a blind eye to developments in the hope of avoiding or even ignoring some kind of factual trigger event that would require them to use reasonable diligence to investigate further. Absolutely not. In the European Real Estate Debt Fund and Trion case, the court found for the claimant on liability in both deceit and conspiracy, but ultimately concluded that the claim was out of time because, again, the claimant could, with reasonable diligence, have discovered the fraud earlier. The claimant had invested in a business and the court concluded further financial information could and should have been sought prior to the investment. While Section 32.1 of the Act only applies once a cause of action is complete, this does not mean that the claimant has carte blanche to ignore events prior to that date. In this case, the court held that the claimant's knowledge arose from a sequence of events, some of which occurred well before the cause of action was complete. The court also considered what a reasonable investor in the position of the claimant could or should have discovered prior to investing. It found that the reasonable investor would have asked more questions and obtained further financial data, which would have led to the discovery of sufficient facts to enable it to plead its claims. The next case is the Libyan Investment Authority and Credit Suisse. The basic question for the court to decide here was whether, with reasonable diligence, the LIA could have discovered an alleged fraud earlier. In this case, the court found that time should not start to run until the alleged fraud could be pleaded in a statement of case. The worthwhile claim test from Franked Investments, which Harriet talked about earlier, was distinguished. Here, the court held that where fraud is an issue, the stricter statement of claim test is appropriate to prevent fraud victims potentially losing claims due to the passage of time too easily, but also pleading fraud on a speculative basis becoming too common. On the questions of diligence, the court confirmed again that this is to be judged objectively, although in the context in which the claimant finds itself. Further, the court held that once the LIA had the requisite knowledge, it remained with it, even if the relevant individual subsequently forgot or even left the organisation. The final case, 
of Bilter and SVS also relates to the meaning of reasonable diligence in the context of fraud and concealment, and also considers the franked investment worthwhile claim test that Harriet talked about earlier. Here, while recognising there was an argument that time should start to run as soon as the claimant realises they have a worthwhile claim, the court held this was redolent with difficulty, particularly in cases involving allegations of fraud or dishonesty, and that the statement of claim test was more appropriate. Thank you for that summary. So I think it's worth concluding um, that there are probably four key points to remember on Section 32 limitation. The first is that the worthwhile claim test from franked investment may be confined only to mistakes of law and concealment, so it might not apply in fraud. Um, The second point is in a concealment case, pending any further decision from the Supreme Court, there doesn't need to be active concealment, so any form of reckless legal wrongdoing may suffice. Thirdly, while the limitation clock won't begin to run until a cause of action is complete, the knowledge necessary to bring the claim may be acquired prior to the completion of the cause of action. And finally, reasonable diligence. So the objective test based on an actual claimant, not a hypothetical claimant. However, claimants need to be aware that it includes a wide spectrum of activities. For example, it may include issuing proceedings, seeking disclosure, or even making a Norwich Pharmacal application. So, whatever the future holds for the reasonable diligence test, the recent decisions highlight the draconian consequences of leaving it too late to issue your claim. Thanks, Michael. That concludes our podcast on limitation. Um, Please do join us next time for the next podcast in our autumn series.